music they make us listen to. I'm your host, Lee, and I'm here with my co-host. No, I'm not. I'm Peter. And I'm here with my co-host. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. I'm Peter, and I'm here with my co-host, Lee. Hi. We're keeping that. That's the new <laughs> intro now. Keep keep them keep them guessing. Keep them on our toes. Uh, on their Peter, toes. On our like, toes. You're you're like six on ten on getting the intros in one take. Yeah. You nailed it. <laughs> I was so you, proud of it. I think that's what stroke. it was. I nailed the intro and I was so distracted by being proud of myself that I then said the wrong name. <laughs> I was so distracted on thinking of which stupid response I was <laughs> yeah. gonna go with. Like God. it's like Am I going to be serious? Well, anyway, <laughs> welcome. Hi there. Now, I, I hope this isn't your first time Cats tuning in. Bag. Normally, we've got our, normally, we've got our shit together. Yeah. Hi. Uh, thanks for joining us. We have, uh, so the month of October is generally a dark month. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty giddy about October. I'm totally, it's Halloween month for me. I love it. Pumpkin spice lattes, got my Uggs. I don't have Uggs. <laughs> But pumpkin spice lattes are a big deal. Mostly the spookiness, though. I like the spookiness, the gloominess. You still got some decently warm weather. Yep, yep. But some beautifully, beautifully overcast days and nights. And And we're going to focus on that overcast and the nights for the next three major disasters. Because we decided that for this October, we're bringing you what we're calling our trilogy of despair. (laughs) <laughs> or devastation. We're going to get a little dark We're for We're going to get a little bit dark for a change. <laughs> so a little, just a little bit of housekeeping, get it out of the way quickly so we can move on to the disaster. If you're new here, thanks for joining. We're glad to have you. We make references to our previous episodes quite a bit. Not like inside jokes, but more like a completionist kind of thing. So if you want the whole experience, I recommend you check those out. Yeah. We have our shop up and running with some sweet merch in there and some bonus content. So check that out. And now on to what we're going to talk about today, Mm. which is the famine in Egypt. Oh. And I'm going to specify which one, because (laughs) it turns out Egypt has had a a few of them. Yeah. But I'm going to start off by talking about the rise of civilizations. Aha. And you'll see why in a minute. Okay. So surprise, there are many theories about how we got to where we are, historically speaking. Mm. Go figure, right? Yeah. So I'm not a historian up front. I'm a history buff. I'm not a history expert, I guess. Bit of a buff. Right. But one of the most compelling accounts that I subscribe to is outlined by Jared Diamond. You might've heard of him. He wrote a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel. Oh, no. Incidentally, if you missed our latest episode, mini episode on the Oxford comma, the title of that book as written on the cover (laughs) is Guns, comma, Germs, comma, and Steel. Mm, Get it? Correctly. He wrote it correctly. There's no germs germs don't have steel. steel. No. With them. Yeah. Oxford comma. Oxford comma. Everyone. Quick sidebar right up front about Jared Diamond, because I thought he was super cool. So he's probably best known for his writings on history, but he began his career by studying anthropology and physiology. He did a PhD in physiology, and his topic was on the biophysics of membranes in the gallbladder. Seems kind of unrelated. That's awfully specific. Right, and he was actually a professor of physiology at UCLA Medical School for Mm -hmm. a long time. And then in his 50s, he built a second career in environmental history and geography, Hmm. And he's now written several books on the rise and fall of civilizations. So he's basically like your modern polymath. Wow. Yeah. He's, he's kind a bit of, of a dynamo. Yeah, he's, he's kind of a big deal. Okay. It's pretty cool. Hmm. So basically, Diamond argues that civilization is a product of existing conditions rather than a direct result of superior intelligence. So there's a few different, I guess, competing theories. Some sure. say that because we were more intelligent, we got to where we are now. And some, like Diamond's theory, in a nutshell, again, it's like a 
600-page book. Yeah. So Sum it up, could you? In a sentence, <laughs> please? I'm so, busy. But if anything, he says that it's the other way around, that in- intelligence came later as a result of conditions and a little bit of luck. Yeah. So the progress of the human development is inextricably tied, he says, to the availability of farmable plants and fertile land. Mm-hmm. which allows humans to move away from the nomad lifestyle. So no longer, it's no longer everybody's job to contribute to survival. Right. So you now have a division of labor, farmers farm, but not everyone needs to be a farmer because of the abundant plants growing in the fertile land. Right. So now you have enough to feed everyone through the labor of a few, or if not a few, then not the labor of every man, woman, and child like before. Yes. And this allows for non-farmer specialties to arise. And that's what leads to kind of snowballs and you build a civilization on that. Right. So basically you get to a point where you're not worried about where the next meal is coming from. Uh, but you can think about, you know, what's iron? What's democracy? How do I navigate using the stars? Because you're free to not think about where, like, what, what animal do I have to kill next exactly. to survive? Who am I? Yeah. What's my purpose? So for this kind of development of human civilization, you need, or what Diamond suggests you need, is the right conditions, such as are found in a region of the Middle East known as the Fertile Crescent. That's right. Yep. I heard of that. Right? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're moving into territory you might be a bit more familiar with. Why would anyone theorize that intelligence was the... Well, I guess the idea is that maybe it's a chicken and egg kind of thing, because maybe you had to be smart enough to be able to bend the land to your will... Smart Pick enough, right I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's baby steps. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Look over there, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that crescent's <laughs> awfully fertile. <laughs> no, exactly. That's what they think, isn't it? But there are also Idiots. other, there are other theories. I didn't go too deep on this aspect. Surprise, because yeah. I go on sidebars all the time. I didn't go too deep on this aspect, but the, I know that there are competing theories about where life actually started and how it spread. Right. But I do find... Jared Diamond's account fairly compelling in that, you know, there, if you kind of look at how civilizations grew in the oldest civilizations, they really are centered around these areas of abundance. Which, yes, again, oh, of course. Makes sense. If you're not worried about where your meal is coming from, you can start thinking about it's, philosophy. It's a leg up. Exactly. So the Fertile Crescent, the archaeologist James Breasted, <laughs> I bet he is. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> James Breasted coined the term, uh, it's Breasted. I actually looked up the pronunciation because I've been, I've been getting angry at myself at mispronouncing a lot of things. So anyway, James <laughs> Breasted yes. coined the term Fertile Crescent. It's a region in the Middle East covering Egypt, Iraq, Israel, Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. All right. It's varied and turbulent geological history resulted in the evolution of plant species that emphasized high growth rates. So in crowded, unstable environments like this area or this region was, organisms that evolve to grow and spread quickly survive more than ones that, you know, if there's no competition, why waste energy evolving things that will help you compete when you can just evolve the ability to grow super fast? Mm -hmm. So more living members, also more living members in an area provide more living material for evolution to exert its pressure on. So additionally, emphasizing high growth rather than competitive strategies is more efficient because when it's uncrowded and there are a few predators, no point evolving competitive yeah. strategies. So anyway, among these high growth rate species were those that would become staples of early agriculture like wheat, barley, flax, chickpea, lentil, things that we still eat. I love probably, all that stuff. Yeah, they're probably unrecognizable. My favorite too. You know, thousands of years ago, like corn. Right. right. The oh, corn yeah. we eat is nothing like I, corn I've, used I've to be. I've looked into that kind of, and <laughs> yeah. bananas and yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it shouldn't be surprising that some of the oldest civilizations sprang from the Fertile Crescent, mm. including the Egyptian Empire. Aha. 
Egypt has a long and storied history with the Nile. It's the longest river in Africa and possibly the world, though Brazil claims the Amazon is longer. Mm. I guess it depends on what you count as mm. part of the Showdown river. Showdown there. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So the Nile travels north for 6,650 kilometers or 4,130 miles through 11 African countries towards the Mediterranean Sea. Sheesh. It's big. It's a big deal. It's a big one. It's big. It's a big deal. Yeah. The earliest tribes began populating the region around the Nile around 5,500 BC. Okay. Which, a little bit of context, the very first episode we did about the plague of Athens. Yeah. That was around 430 BC. So. So if you thought that that was a long time ago. Try to picture like 10 times that. So in 5,000 BC, they were getting, There's so by that plague, they were like zipping around in cars and stuff. Oh yeah, basically. It's Flying cars. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but those, the cars were brought by the aliens that built the pyramids. Right. Who seeded the earth. That's a whole other, exactly. Yes. That's a whole other thing. We don't need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have a note here, after talking to Norm in that Cosmic Terror episode, <laughs> nothing really seems that old. So on well, the one hand, 5,500 yeah. years is inconceivable. On the other hand... These are stupid, stupid numbers. Like just last <laughs> Monday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For our little pea brains, yeah. it's a big number. Right. So 5,000 BC. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So that's when the first tribe started populating the region. Okay. Uh, Egypt was a much different pre uh, place back then. Mm. So it wasn't the typical desert that you picture now. And not to say all of Egypt is, is a desert, but that's predominantly what you picture. That's what you think. It was, a mixed, it, was, it, was, it was a mixed woodland, grassland ecosystem. Huh. Hunting was still the preferred way of gathering food, but there was a slow, steady shift towards agriculture mm. that started early on because they saw that it was such like a fertile area. Right. Won't do, so I'm not going to go too deep into ancient Egyptian history because that is like an entire podcast. Yeah. And I'm not, not like an episode, but you could build a podcast about talking about the Egyptian empire and yeah. what, what it's been through. Episode for episode. Exactly. But uh, for scale, the first tangible appearance of the Egyptian empire as we know it was around 3050 BC. And listeners, please don't crucify me, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> Because the further back you go, the hazier the history gets. There's no hard lines in the sand, also, pun intended. But the, <laughs> that, that, that's the last pun. Last pun. Okay. But really, things get hazy the further back you go. And I'm sure someone else could, someone more versed could say, like, actually, the Egyptian Empire started here. But we're going to say it started in 3050 BC. You know what? Yep. I think you're right. <laughs> I said no more puns from you. I, okay. I get one. That was a good one. <laughs> Roman history entangles with Egypt's history at around 30 BC. Okay. So Egypt is That's an forward. empire for 3000 years yeah. before they meet the Romans. Pretty well, good. Pretty they, well They knew about the Romans, but like Roman, the Romans established themselves in Egypt a 3000 years after the empire started. Hmm. Crazy. So for, and it, this is also interesting. So for longer than zero to today AD, yes. Egypt had some kind of organized civilization. That's crazy. Right? <laughs> it's, we've been around for 2019 <laughs> and Egypt's like, oh, that's uh, adorable. We were, we were around for longer than that, that whole time. Before zero. Plus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, yeah. good luck with your civilization right. it's almost done isn't it it yeah. seems like it. <laughs> it's getting there <laughs> yeah. so it uh, and it was not just like an app, uh, haphazard assembly of tribes so archaeological evidence shows that egyptians were building sophisticated seafaring ships as early as 3000 bc that is crazy right and it's it's like, so yeah well just the wherewithal you'd have to have to i mean math barely existed yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> let alone 
tools. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, they had them, sure, but no power drills, I don't think. No, no, but I think all of this kind of ties back to something that came up in the very first episode we did, where I think it's so far removed, where oh, there's so many commonalities, where it's still five, five fingers, five toes, arms, yeah. legs, like we're still human beings. Oh, yeah. But 3,000 years B.C., 5,000 years ago, they were building ships. Mm -hmm. 5,000 years ago. I can barely wrap my head around the fact that I was alive like 30 years ago, <laughs> yeah. right? Anyway, all of this, yes. thanks in no small part to the Nile. Mm. So when a civilization has been inextricably tied to a life-giving force such as the Nile, it gets to know its patterns. Uh -huh. So we're going to fast forward to the 13th century in Egypt. So now we're going to like the 1200s AD. Whoa. Right? Bit of a big, bit of a leap. Big jump. I give some background, but suffice to say... Empire grew, shrank, had mm. some entanglements with the Romans, mm -hmm. did its own thing for a long time, and now we're in the year 1200. Okay. And this is like the time of the Crusades. Yes, right. So our guide for this story is a historian named Abd al-Latif. Okay. And he wrote extensively about Egypt, specifically in this period, because okay. he was visiting there for a long time. Mm. So typically, the Nile would rise in late June, peak in September, and then recede. And it would leave a dense layer of silt for peasants to cultivate. Okay. So it's basically a source of a lot of fertility in the area. Yes, yes, yes. Historically, the Nile needed to rise about seven meters or 24 feet to yield a good crop. Okay. And technically, if, if we want to split hairs, this was expressed in cubits in uh -huh. the historical accounts. Yes. Luckily, I love splitting hairs. So sidebar on cubits. <laughs> Hell <laughs> so yeah, the, we split hairs. Right? <laughs> So the cubit comes from the Latin cubitus, meaning elbow. And it's a unit of measurement defined as the distance from the elbow to the tip of your middle finger. Oh, that's good. Right? Good system. Yeah, right? <laughs> get like, you're buying cloth, get the shortest person you know to measure the cloth. <laughs> what? You said five you cubits? You said cubits. Yeah. You did not specify who. You didn't say non-child cubits. No. <laughs> <laughs> so the ancient Egyptian royal cubit was the earliest standard measure. Okay. So the cubit measuring rods were subdivided into palms and fingers. <laughs> which you're exactly what you think. But they were like a sta they were standardized rod sizes. All right. So I guess they picked someone's arm and then measured it Probably and then made rods. Probably some monarch or other. Probably. Or and then I, I, I remember reading somewhere Pharaoh. that- Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Yeah. Would be the word. There you go. Good one. I know stuff. Yeah, Egypt. Go on. <laughs> so I remember reading some historical account that the cubits that they found, the standard ones were like plus or minus five centimeters- within like sure. to each other okay so anyway <laughs> i wonder uh, why right <laughs> so the ancient romans defined a cubit as 1.5 roman feet okay L literal roman feet yeah not i mean oh, we laugh about yeah. that but the foot is <laughs> that's still literally based on some dumb yeah. king's size of his foot yep uh-huh imperials right <laughs> right anyway, go on <laughs> uh thanks for tuning in usa yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> or six palm widths mm. Uh, so real accurate measurements. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's the cubit. Close enough. Right. So interestingly, maybe for me, because I'm taking tax law right now, advanced tax law. Oh, yeah. Interestingly, when the Nile reached those seven meters, that was known as the Sultan's water because that's when farmers had to pay tax on their land. Oh. Right? <laughs> but I actually, but. I find that kind of, it's firm but fair, right? Yeah. Because the water had to get to a level where they would actually generate income to right. be taxed on it. Like we know you're going to have a good crop. Yeah. So. The dick move would be to just set a tax rate and you have to pay it regardless of yeah, you, have a, right. you have a crop That's or not. That's actually so. pretty. That's all right. It's pretty decent. Thanks, Sultan. Thanks, Sultan. Thanks. You're all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you ask the Christians, in which case they want to kill you. Hard. Ooh. Well. Hard. Crusades. <laughs> 
So if the Nile rose to eight meters, the crop yield would be enough to feed the country for two years. Sheesh. But if it rose to nine meters, the flooding would be too severe to allow cultivation. Ooh. But similarly, if the Nile rose to less than seven meters, the crop yields would be diminished severely, yeah. which is not something you want to happen. No. Twice in a row. You want to Goldilocks it. Oh, twice? Yeah. Well, it's, it's something that you wouldn't want to happen once. Yeah, well, yeah. Certainly not twice. Let alone twice. What? Who? No. Uh, anyway, keep playing. Keep talking. The summer of 1200. Mm. In the spring of 1200, the Nile turned green. Oh. It became darker and darker. <laughs> <laughs> the spring. Well, I guess that would be March. No, it wasn't. They didn't have. They're not a thing yet. Obviously not a thing yet. <laughs> Obvious? What's St. Patrick's Keep it on our social medias. We'll let you know if St. Patrick's Day was a thing. So it turned green and it got darker and darker over time. Hmm. And it smelled awful. Oh. The water took on a, quote, corrupt character, as Abdal Latif put it. Right. So we've got a lot of quotes from him. Okay. This Any quotes are probably going to be for him. Yeah. yeah. Oiling the water didn't make it palatable. Hmm. And it forced people to switch to well water, which doesn't seem like a huge deal. But the Nile is the lifeline of this region. So, <laughs> Where's that water coming from? Right. Well, well yeah. Abdel Latif experimented on the water, and he found that it was choked green with plant matter. And uh, he traced it back to unusually light rains at the source of the Nile. Okay. Which, I don't know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Hmm. So the Nile turning green turned out to be an omen, because as summer arrived, the, the green color retreated. Okay. Great. That was weird, but... All is well. We're good. We're good. Unfortunately... The color retreated, but the shores of the Nile didn't follow suit. Mm. In September 1200, the Nile peaked as it always does. Unfortunately, it did so at a devastatingly low 12 cubits or 5.5 meters. Ooh. So remember, seven was the bare seven. minimum for a good harvest. Yeah. So nine meters was flooding, eight meters was food for two years, and seven meters was minimum for good harvest. Mm. If you're the sultan, minimum for taxes. Yeah. Hey, no tax. So we're nearly two meters under the minimum. Oh. Also remember that this was September, the high point. And then the Nile began to drop. Oh. So oh no. enter 1201 in ah. Egypt. So Egypt rang in the year 1201 with skyrocketing food prices. <laughs> Everyone feared a looming famine. Okay. Because the Nile hadn't risen to cultivatable heights. Right. right? Peasants fled the newly arid countryside searching for housing in either larger Egyptian towns or even outside the country. Mm. And it turns out that the latter group probably made the better choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Though, this actually taps into something that comes up in a lot of our disasters. I'm thinking specifically, a little bit in Athens, but mostly in like Fire of London and uh, Mount St. Helens. Okay. Because your, your initial reaction is, oh, you see famine coming, leave. Why yeah, you leave. Leave, you dumb. Yeah. Like, dumb I, idiot. You, you could see it coming. Anyone could. Uh-huh. But when you think, like when you really think about packing all of your essentials and leaving your house, what would it take? for you to have to do that. Right. And I think if you're really being honest with yourself, I think you wouldn't do that until you're staring at the mushroom cloud. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Or I would do it if I could know yeah. beyond the shadow of a doubt yeah. that what I was doing was the right move. Mm -hmm. So to somehow stare into the future, see what the outcome is, and then I would decide. Yeah. Right. Unfortunately. Any, any other way, I would just be like, it's probably fine. Right. <laughs> so whenever I read something like this and I have that knee-jerk reaction of, well, why didn't you leave? I know. Immediately, I feel like that know-it-all on a couch being like, oh, you, sh you should have just exactly. passed the ball. You should, why didn't you shoot the puck? <laughs> yeah. I don't, because you're not there. Because 
Because yeah. you wouldn't do any different. Why don't you say this answer on the family feud? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's my version of it. I don't watch sports. So I've got a pop quiz for the listeners at home, and for you for that matter. Oh. <laughs> Tell me if this sounds familiar. Okay. The vast majority of the Egyptian population that fled the banks of the Nile ended up crammed into the city of Cairo. <laughs> Probably I not. say true. Nothing, nothing, nothing wrong happens there. Oh, boy. Plague of Athens. Yeah. <clears throat> we'll get to that. Mm. So Abdel Latif has a few quotes about this. And... <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> okay. The air was corrupted. The plague and contagion began to make itself felt. And the poor, pressed by the famine, which struck them always, ate carrion, corpses, dogs, and the filth of animals. Oh, dear. This went on for a long time until they began to eat little children. <laughs> and at this point, this when I read that... This famine. Right? So when I read that, my reaction was... What the fuck? <laughs> and I don't even mean like, uh, I could. So in an episode of this podcast about famine, it's probably a safe bet that we'd get to cannibalism sooner or later. But Latif's just going to drop it on us like that. <laughs> like this was in the space of a paragraph. Right. Right. So the paragraph. So we basically go from the air is not great and we're a little bit hungry to eating to children eating with young. no period period in between. Right. <laughs> One sentence. Spread it out. Come on. We've gotten there before, but it took us like an episode. <laughs> maybe they just jumped the gun a little bit. Right. Maybe. Like, I'm I mean, hungry. Let's eat junior. <laughs> that <laughs> just that, that paragraph of historical text escalated quickly yes. when I read it. It was <laughs> jarring. Let's put yeah, it that yeah. way. Went from zero to cannibalism. Yeah, right. Although then I took a step back and I realized that it is, it's kind of, the way it's put together is a nice analogy and an illustration of the extreme effect that hunger has on mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do a quick little sidebar on hunger generally. So I recently read a book and it's actually on, I, I, I was reading about my about section on our website and I actually mentioned this book. It's okay. called Hunger and Unnatural History because I'm interested in <laughs> human suffering. <laughs> anyway. So our gastrointestinal system is sometimes referred to, or it's often referred to as the second brain. Okay. Because if you think about, think about the hungriest you've ever been, or even just when you're noticeably hungry, right? right? Your mood changes almost instantly. Mm -hmm. Your motivations are gradually taken over by the desire to find food. And eventually it's all you can think about, right? (laughs) Yes. So even like rationally, you know, that dinner's in half an hour. I'm hungry now. I know. And it's like you get angrier and angrier and it's all you can think about. It becomes this all consuming thing. Yeah. And it comes from a deep seated evolutionary drive to not starve. Right. Yeah. Because for millions of years, that was our main concern. When our ancient ancestors roamed the plains of Africa, hunger was a critical monitor of well-being. Like we have, we still have nausea and averse reactions to smell of decay and stuff. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when the fact that we get grossed out by a gross smell is because that means that there's something that could cause sickness. Right. So bad to get eat. away from it. Yeah. Even though now there are things that smell bad that's not, that aren't going to cause the plague. <laughs> Most. We still have the that. food I eat smells bad <laughs> when you're making it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, it helps us, it helps monitor our well-being, but it's also a huge motivator. Yeah. And I guess a problem in the modern era is the abundance of high calorie food and the fact that we still have that instinct of like you get hungry and you yeah. can instantly satiate it with not particularly healthy and calorie dense foods, right? Oh yeah. So now the second you get hungry, you're like, oh, I got to kill this. Yeah. With get food. some chips. Yeah. Immediately. Endorphins. Immediately. Endorphins. Yeah. Ugh. Right? Yeah. So happy. I actually took this, well, I read that book in, in 2018 because I think as you know, I kind of did an experiment on myself where I just like, I basically starved myself for the year. 
I think I ate right. an average between like twelve and fifteen hundred calories a day, which okay. for reference, <laughs> a human adult my need age like needs 2, like two thousand to twenty five hundred. <laughs> anyway, the biggest lesson was that there that I learned and take it for what it's worth, is that there's a huge gap between the first pangs of hunger and when you actually need to eat. Yes. Like, it's it's just illustrative of the control that the second brain, quote-unquote, of the gastrointestinal system can have over your body. It yeah, just yeah, makes yeah. you desperate for food. And it's just like your brain can be like, no, I'm a bit peckish. Mm-hmm. And your stomach mm-hmm. is just like, this is awful, I'm dying, make it stop. Yeah. And anyway. Fail me. Yeah. So anyway, the point is, probably cut all that. <laughs> the point is, Involuntary starvation is awful and can lead to pretty grim outcomes faster than you think. Yeah, so, I would say so. Even though that paragraph escalated quickly, it's probably proportional to how things escalated yeah. in 1201 Egypt. It's it's f- not entirely unfair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, eating children. Abdel Latif has a few more quotes. It was not rare to surprise people with little children roasted or boiled, which is not <laughs> you invite someone for a potluck. <laughs> I wanted a Caesar salad. <laughs> also, who's Caesar? No, this is 1200. Uh, they know. But, you know. His salad. Yeah. <laughs> I myself saw a small roasted child in a basket. They carried it to the governor and led in at the same time a man and a woman who they said were the father and mother of the child. <laughs> but the governor condemned them to be burned alive. So it's a, it's a dark time. Jesus. Although... I mean... Can you burn my arm first so I well, can eat it? <laughs> so, I mean, Latif's account says the governor contend them to be burned alive. Burned Might have said roasted. <laughs> maybe braised with a bit of lemon and beer. Maybe spitted and... Yeah. Uh, maybe seared <laughs> over some coals. Go stand in that... Like a little... <laughs> pot. Right. Stuff. Trying to be smells like sauce, not sauce. <laughs> Trying to be sanctimonious about it. Burn them! <laughs> Slowly! <Yeah. laughs> over the cold, rotate them. Rotate them. Flip it. Don't don't, don't, don't let it get a crust. <laughs> so, at first, the cannibalism was condemned as horrific. Mm-hmm. But eventually it became more and more accepted. Later so, that day. <laughs> event, <laughs> at the pace that this yeah, historical exactly. account goes. I'm just going goes. with what this guy is. So, yeah. uh, Latif again. Subsequently, they accustomed themselves to such things and conceived quite a taste for these detestable foods. <laughs> Which, again, hunger's a bitch. Yeah. It's true. Like, it's, it's true unrelenting starvation. You know, if you're peckish and daydreaming about actual baby back ribs, maybe talk to someone. <laughs> but this is like... Jeez. Hunger, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure and slash hope that none of the people listening have ever experienced. I, I would hope not. No. I mean, yeah, my daughter would, you know, say, I am, Dad, I'm starving. Like, no, you've never been. Mm-mm. You don't know the meaning of that word. No, exactly. <laughs> the closest that we might have, like, maybe a day of forgetting to eat or too busy to You're eat. You're just too busy. You get to the end of like, it. You're pretty drained and you feel awful. It's weird. Like, you sort of... S- Past a certain point where it's like, yeah, I'm not even that hungry anymore. I'm I'm a little sick. Right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and that's kind of uh, a little bit of my experience too. Where like when I was hungry all the time, I had this weird like, I refer to it as negative or like dark energy. Because <laughs> like I got a lot done, but right. I was just it was a it wasn't like a happy getting things done. Yeah, it was a distraction. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So there were some historical accounts of warehouses filled with stripped bones and cauldrons filled with the heads of small children. (laughs) 
and children were often actually sold into slavery for next to nothing, just so the parents had a glimmer of hope that they might survive. Because a lot of children getting eaten at this point. Well, yeah, I, I have to wonder if they've just sort of cast their stone where it's like, as a civilization, we're doomed. Yeah. So let's get rid of the kids. Oh, I see. So they don't have to grow up into this nightmare. Yeah. Feed ourselves and get rid of a long-term problem. Yeah. I wonder. Uh, <clears throat> there's the more pessimistic, or the, 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 the grimmer is that grim, kids, gruesome. kids can't really fight back. Okay. So they're easier. To... I was gonna say because they taste better. <laughs> oh God! I don't. I mean, it's it's steak versus veal. I guess I don't. Can know. We just laugh at child cannibalism. Yeah. Cool. 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 Yeah. Cool. 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 We got there. Yeah. We got there. <laughs> so, a few more quotes here. If you're still listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a few more quotes from Abdel Latif. As for the number of the poor who perished from exhaustion and hunger, God alone knows. In the streets, there was no single one where the feet or the eyes did not meet with a corpse or a man in the throes of mortal agony. Oh, God. Just ever surrounded by human beings starving to death, right. basically. They carried away, particularly from Cairo, each day between 100 and 500 dead bodies, daily. They could not inter them, but contented themselves with throwing them outside the town, which, if you remember, if you think back to what happened with the plague of Athens, too, mm -hmm. they... they had these sacred rituals de for dealing with a deceased corpse. Yes. But during the throes of that plague, hmm. it devolved to like throwing them on the temple and steps one, and being like, two, that's good. Three. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Yep. So the rich could afford to move away from the famine stricken regions. Yes. Which resulted in a mass abandonment of many of the smaller and not so small villages. Hmm. So walking through any of these villages, you'd be treated to deathly silence and houses, doors ajar filled with corpses. Some rotten and some still fresh. So just <laughs> holy moly. Surrounded by death. By death and despair. And that's like, I can't, that's not an exaggeration. I can't emphasize enough that literally everywhere you looked, people were dying. <laughs> yeah. The main road in and out of Cairo became a feast for birds and other animals tearing voraciously at the corpses lining it. Mm. So not only are you surrounded by corpses, you're also surrounded by the image of animals eating people you probably do yeah vultures and hyenas and yeah yeah good stuff so i'm gonna do a bit of a sidebar for a second oh great about something called the aswan dam because it's amazingly egypt's dependence on the nile lasted into the 20th century so wow. for another 700 years following just this the the rising and falling of the Nile. basically, well, basically. like they, they were they were their they okay. were at the mercy of the Nile, essentially. Jay. Until the 1900s when they bu built the Aswan Dam. Mm -hmm. Attempts to dam the Nile and provide more predictable farming conditions dated back to the 11th century. So people have thought about doing it. Okay. Even, even before this. <laughs> Ibn al-Haytham was an engineer who was commissioned by the Fatimid Caliph to come up with a solution to regulate the flooding of the Nile. Okay. So al-Haytham's fieldwork convinced him that it was impossible to flood the Nile. Yeah. This was in the 11th century. All right. But he didn't want to incur the wrath of the caliph, so he feigned madness for a decade until the caliph died. <laughs> Holy right! <laughs> Caliph's like, "Hey, can you can you damn this thing?" And goes takes a look. Uh, I can see tastes. I don't know. <laughs> How do you feign madness for ten years? Well, yeah. Now there's frogs everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. 
that's one way to get out of pissing off your boss. Sure. <laughs> Try that next time. Next time you do something wrong at work, feign madness feign for a decade. Feign madness. <laughs> Don't break. Yeah. So the first successful dam was completed in 1902, and it was built in the city of Aswam, unsurprisingly near a narrow portion of the Nile. So it was constructed by the British following their invasion and occupation of Egypt in 1882. Nice of them. Mm -hmm. And it was actually heightened several times after the initial construction. And it was, and it's now, this final height was 36 meters or 118 feet. Okay. But it was found to be inadequate uh, in controlling the flooding to the degree that they wanted to be able to control it. Okay. And so now it's known as the Low Aswan Dam because... The High Aswan Dam, or the Aswan High Dam, was completed in 1970 and filled in 1976. Man. But getting it built was kind of an ordeal. So the Greek-Egyptian engineer Adrian Daninos pitched a plan to build a new higher dam in 1952. Hmm. And King Farouk, ruler of Egypt at the time, wasn't interested, even though the low dam almost overflowed six years prior, so clearly it's not, not cutting, his job. Cutting, the, cutting the mustard. Mm. Is that cutting mustard? Mustard. Yeah, okay, there we go. I'll take it. <laughs> so he at the time favored a plan, the king did, to divert and store the Nile's water in Sudan and Ethiopia. But that's actually an interesting uh, legal question or property law question, because mm. if you divert water and store it in another country, how do you, whose water is who? Whose water is it? Right? You're mixing it with that country's water. Shh. Right? Are you just giving you them water? Put dibs on Who water? has property rights over water? Yeah. So like my, a cupcake. My first year law professor would love that question. Wow. You're doing a good job. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so King Farouk was overthrown by the Free Officers Movement, which is a group of Egyptian nationalist officers in the armed forces, in the Egyptian Revolution of 1952. Turns out there's been many Egyptian revolutions. Okay. So they were adamant that the water needed to stay within the Egyptian borders, and they were all for the higher dam plan. <clears throat> so funding the project ended up being an, essentially a bidding war between the US and the USSR, because this is during the Cold War. Okay. And eventually Nasser, which was the new president, who was put in place after the revolution, decided the country would fund the dam itself. Hmm. And to do that, they would nationalize the Suez Canal, which is a waterway connecting the Mediterranean and the Red Seas. And oh. that would allow Egypt to collect tolls, generate revenue, and build the dam, which is great. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> the Suez War, led by Israel, France, and the UK, ripped control of the Suez Canal from Egyptian hands and placed it in Western ones. Oh, so frig. there goes that plan. Yeah. Temporarily. Because the military operation was extremely effective at seizing the Suez Canal and also alienating the countries involved on the world stage. Hmm. So they withdrew their forces and returned control of the canal to Egypt, but the canal was reopened to shipping in 1957, like five years later. So there go all the profits that could have funded the dam. <laughs> so then the USSR swoops in, makes Egypt an offer, and ends up funding the dam, which, I mean, all of this, is it just me or like our global politics just children playing with toys pretty much i want it i get no, it no i want it we were doing stuff with this yeah. not anymore yeah i yeah. didn't want it till you had it now it's mine yeah thanks politics good stuff but again what's the anyway <laughs> with the building of the aswan high dam egypt was finally no longer at the mercy of the nile's whim Unfortunately, this story takes place 775 years before that dam was built. <laughs> Irrelevant. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> Thanks for wasting our time. I thought it was interesting. It is. People come here for the sidebars. That's true. And the disasters. <laughs> Look, we've already given starvation and cannibalism. I think I earned a historical sidebar. <laughs> I think it was a nice break from all that horrible horridness. Funny you should say that, mm. because in April 1201, the Nile turned green again. What? So it would reach a maximum height of 6.8 meters by September. 
Which, getting closer. But not as, well, not as tragically low as before. No. And even though some fields were sufficiently flooded, yeah. the peasants tending to them were either too poor to cultivate them or they were corpses. <laughs> so some of the fields were what might have had great yields. If Nobody. There did. were anyone but ghosts to. Exactly. Tend them. Mm-hmm. So. Shit. Food prices once again skyrocketed higher than even before. <laughs> and Thanks. the whole thing started up again. <laughs> Cannibalism. And, and it, oh, I guess. eating babies again. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like they wouldn't be too broken up about it at this point. No. Because they're kind of used to, this is a, this is a year, this is now entering year two. Yeah. So I, I say it started up again. Odds are it didn't go it away. probably never stopped. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess. Kind of a silver lining. Fewer of the poor died this time around because that's most of the people that died. Right. But that's probably in large part because their numbers were so thinned by the <laughs> yeah. first year of famine. Oh, there was a thinning of the herd. Yeah, I but I guess think. the other bonus is that there's less cannibalism too <laughs> because there's fewer <laughs> less people, people to eat. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so silver actually, lining? the the depopulation was so severe that rents in Egyptian cities dropped by about eighty five percent. Wow. And actually, even eventually, even wheat prices declined because there were just nobody to buy the wheat. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Charge what you want if there's if there's only bodies buying. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. buying. They're <laughs> buying. And so on. So the deaths officially registered in Egypt hit over 100,000 between 1200 and 1202. And for perspective, the population of Egypt in the 12th century was approximately 7.2 million. Okay. Which the official death record was approximately 1.3% of the population. Hmm. The population of Egypt now is about 98 million. So if 1.3% of modern Egypt starved to death, it'd be about 1.3 million people. But that's just the official record. Like right. That's, that's somebody actually writing down who these people died, which yeah. might mean that when, uh, when there's this many people dying, it might just be the ones that are important enough how, to write how down. Ac- yeah, exactly. And I say, I feel bad saying important enough to die, to write down, but. Well, know. it's. Yeah. You know. It's the way it goes. It's Yeah, it is the way there's it goes. Status. Yeah. So Abdel Latif calls the official number less than nothing if one compares it to the infinite multitude of those whom death carried off or who had been eaten in all the cities, the county districts, and on the roads. Mm. So his thought was that 100,000 was way too low. Right. Then plague struck the famine-weakened country in 1202. So this was all pre-plague. I can't believe it hadn't took that long. And here's a bit of, here's something that might come up. A little bit later. Okay. Uh, peasants dropped dead at their plows. And in Alexandria, funeral rituals were held for 700 people in a single day. <sighs> but you know what? Uh, let's put a pin in plague for now. Yeah. And stay tuned. And stay tuned for some more plague, maybe. Maybe. You never know. Yeah. We're, we're headed to a, yeah. to a black time in history. Yeah. Very shortly. Mm. So to add insult to injury, <clears throat> in case we haven't already... <laughs> On May 20th, 1202, Egypt was rocked by a series of violent earthquakes. <laughs> Cannot catch a break. No. They, quote, loosened buildings, made the doors shake and crack the roofs and the rafters. <sighs> Cities on the coast were flooded and ships ran aground. And I want to say possibly a tsunami or two. If you're Chances any, are. If you want to be convinced, maybe check out our tsunami terror episode. Yeah. Like number three or four. They are part and parcel. Indeed. The old earthquake. They sure are. <laughs> so these earthquakes nudge the to- the death toll of 1212, like from the region from 1200 to 1202 upwards. But they also acted as the signal of the end of the ruinous famine. Because 
Earlier in 1202, yeah. in February, actually, the Nile turned green for a third time. Oh, but it turns out it was a psych out. Uh, because it rose gradually, then stalled, uh, caused a mild panic. Uh, but then it rose gradually through July, r- continued swelling, hit seven meters in September, and everything was over. <laughs> <laughs> and the Sultan was such a good guy right. that he waived the tax that year. I don't know about no, that. No, he didn't. But, but I do have a note here that says, you know, all's well that ends well, except don't forget death and taxes, because now the Nile is high enough for the farmers <laughs> to get taxed again. <laughs> I want to say, given the generous nature of that taxation scheme, right? probably cut them a break this year. Free pass? I want to say, I want to say yes. How boned would you be if you somehow just survived the famine and then yep. this earthquake comes along? Right. It's like, fucking kidding yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fine. Fine. <laughs> right? <laughs> Standing outside your farmhouse as it shakes to rubble. Yeah. Picking the remnants of your kids' <laughs> roasted meat out of your teeth. God. <laughs> Got anything else what? to throw at me? Yeah, yeah. What now? Yeah. Well, well don't don't ask what now because it's oh. give it 150 years and then we'll see what now. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so that is the dark and tragic tale of the Egyptian famine in 1200. You know, that was a disaster. It was, yeah. <laughs> and it really ramped up quickly. <laughs> it had, we had some famine, jumped right into cannibalism. Boom! Got a little bit of plague in there, throw it, sprinkle in some earthquakes. Yeah, and you then really ended ticked a lot of boxes. With taxes. <laughs> taxes. <laughs> Possibly the worst disaster. And this <laughs> ominous green river. Uh-huh. So I'm interested to hear what kind of music that made you listen to. Yeah. So I uh I kind of had a, a little happy accident with this. Okay. Um for some reason, what came to mind was this band called Robe Door. Okay. Uh they're from I'm Almost positive they're from LA. They're okay. kind of a stoner, doom, drony kind of band. Yeah. And because I just, I was thinking of them just because I know that they they can be pretty dark. Yeah. So I looked at one album. Yeah. Second song on there. Boom. Invisible Osiris. Hey. And I was like, that's on theme. Nice. So uh, yeah, the song is Invisible Osiris from the album Shape Shape Shifter Slave. Yeah, came out in two thousand eight, and it's it's like a nine minute droning uh, piece of music that it's just this constant sort of note that is impenetrable, and then you've got these sort of occasional voices in the background kind of wailing and moaning so to me i mean i saw the song i was like that's pretty good when i listened to the track uh i hadn't heard in a while so i I completely forgot it sounded like it's it it just hit me like this is perfect it's like just sort of this impenetrable like it could be the famine or just the earth sort of like nope yeah. I, will, I will not yield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're getting nothing from me. Wow, and then these sort of voices in the background, like, please, please. Yeah. Uh, so Osiris, of course, is the god or goddess, I forget which one, uh, of fertility. Right, right, right. And many different things. Yeah. So sort of maybe like pleading to the yeah, yeah. god Osiris. Wonder if that, please. wonder if that's inspired no. by, maybe Could not this famine, one well of the Egyptian be. famines. <laughs> yeah, one of many. <laughs> um, so yeah, check that out. Awesome. Good stuff. That, and you probably heard a bunch of it. You better be. 
So my band, uh, or my song, was by a band called Terra Tenebrosa. I think I've recommended them to you. Okay. They're, uh, they're from Stockholm, Sweden. Right. Uh, and they're kind of like a, I guess they're characterized as an avant-garde black metal band. Mm. But they swing, they often swing into like rock and punk grooves, I, okay. I, I, okay. I would say. Cool. And also, <laughs> thinking of a black metal band from Sweden makes me think that Eronymous uh, would call them white metal. As he <laughs> yeah, often right, right. did for White metal. black metal bands from Bit Sweden. Of a rivalry in there. Yeah. So the uh, it's off an album called The Purging. Uh, and I actually, I recommend, maybe this is cheating, but I recommend the first three tracks. To be honest, I recommend the whole album as a soundtrack to The Egyptian Famine. Okay. Because it is very, so first of all, Terra Tenebrosa means dark land which mm. is pretty much how I would describe Egypt from 1200 to 1200. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a dark land. Kind of dark. So the the first track called The Redeeming Teratoma sets kind of a general mood of unrest. It's kind of like one of those intro tracks that's just sounds and voices yeah. and kind of like puts you not at ease. Right. And then the compression chamber, the second track, it's kind of like this plodding black metal ballad almost. Okay. And then the third track switches to a straight up kind of like rock beat almost. Uh-huh. Uh, you got to check it out. I mean, I'm sure maybe I'm playing parts of them right now, but it's basically, I find that that being kind of a parallel just because it, it does like this plotting black metal thing and then does this sudden switch into this kind of like quicker rock beat almost. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, not to mention awesome. that, I mean, it's, it's an awesome, I've been a fan of theirs for a long time. So okay. <clears throat> probably heard some of that there too. I will be hearing some of that later today. I'm going to check that out. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. So next time. Is going to be part two of our October trilogy. Mm. We're going forward about 100 years, 150 years from this famine to a time when an unrelenting black force took a giant bite out of humanity. <laughs> and you probably figured out what it is, <laughs> but it's it's going to be a two-parter because there's a lot to say a about A lot it. to cover. Yeah. So thanks for tuning in. If you want to keep up to date with us, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at This Disaster Pod. You can also go to www.thisdisasterpod.com. Don't forget we got that sweet new shop with mm-hmm. prints and postcards and bonus content. And tell all your friends about this podcast because that's the best way to get the word out. If you like what we're doing, maybe leave us subscribe and leave us a review. That'd be fantastic. Please do. And uh, join us for some more disasters yeah hey if you enjoyed the uh end of the universe episode we recorded some bonus content for that oh yeah it's a doozy it is a good one yeah Um, again with our buddy norm yep so check it out yeah do that yeah do it next time do it next time goodbye